The book of Galatians, six chapters in length, is a kind of compressed capsule version of what is expanded and amplified in the book of Romans. If we can get Galatians, we'll be able to get Romans. And the late R.C. Bell said, if you get Romans, God will get you. That is, if you come to really understand what's said here about God's grace, God's unmerited and undeserved favor, if that really touches and grips your heart, if you come to see that, then in response, you give yourself. And so we might broaden Brother Bell's statement to say, if the great truth of Romans and our Galatians is really understood by you, if you really get that, then God will get you in the sense that in response to His grace, you'll be inclined to give Him your heart. The book of Galatians is written to combat a particular problem. There were certain false teachers in the first century church who tried, in addition to the gospel and the conditions of the gospel, to bind upon converts, Gentile converts, the law of Moses and physical circumcision, an act or rite that began with Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17, but came to stand very much for the whole Judaic system. In fact, Paul will argue early in Galatians 5 that if a man is circumcised, he's debtor to do the whole law. And if you'll look at the beginning verses of Acts chapter 15, Acts 15 verse 1 through Acts 15 verse 5, you'll read there of certain false teachers who were saying, except a man be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, he cannot be saved. Circumcision after the manner of Moses, though actually... It started before Moses in the covenant to Abraham, is, according to the false teachers of Acts 15, a necessary condition to salvation. And so, unless one is circumcised and keeps Moses' law, he cannot be saved. The Galatians are now being plagued by that particular era, that heresy. Paul himself had preached in Galatia, and increasingly it's thought that the Galatia to which Paul writes may have included those churches in South Galatia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul preached on the first missionary journey. At any rate, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia that are now being confronted by these false teachers. And he sounds a clear and clarion note, and that is that we're saved by God's grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, as expressed through the Christ, through His cross, on the condition of our faith, on the condition of our obedient trust. And Paul will make it clear in Galatians that any admixture of Moses' law, any attempt to blend or mix the legalism of Old Testament Judaism with the gospel would be like trying to mix oil and water the two elements cannot be brought together and caused to coalesce. And the attempt to do that puts the whole system out of balance. And, of course, will tend to lay stress upon man and the human side of it all to the neglect of God's grace and God's working and God's gospel and God's Son, the cross of Christ, the Spirit that's given, and so on. And so Galatians is written in something of that kind 
of historical context. In the view of some, it may be one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. Conceivably written prior to Romans, though J.B. Lightfoot and others would see them both written at about the same time, but very similar in content to Romans. Now, I want to put something up here on my invisible board. And I'm ambidextrous on this board, so I'm just going to turn, turn around here and just kind of southpaw it and put three points in which we can divide the entire Galatian letter. We've got six chapters, and under each of these points we can put two chapters. Division number one, the Apostle of Liberty. The Apostle of Liberty. And here we have the autobiographical section. As Paul makes a defense of his apostleship, as he points out that his apostleship was received from God Himself, not of men, neither by man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead, as Paul puts it in the very beginning verse or verses of the letter. So, division number one, the Apostle of Liberty, the autobiographical section, chapters one and two. All right, division number two, the doctrine of liberty, the doctrine of liberty. And here we have the doctrinal section. In chapters three and four, we have the weighty, meaty doctrinal section as Paul deals with the issue, what about the law and binding it now? And he makes it very clear that the law was a preparatory, parenthetical, temporary kind of arrangement, preparing the way for Christ. And now we're no longer under that system. All right, number three. Number one, the Apostle of Liberty, the autobiographical section. Number two, the Doctrine of Liberty, the doctrinal section, chapters three and four. Number three, the Life of Liberty, the Life of Liberty, chapters five and six. And this is the practical section. All right, number one, the Apostle of Liberty, the autobiographical section, chapters one and two. Number two, the doctrine of liberty, the doctrinal section, chapters three and four. Number three, the life of liberty, the practical section, chapters five and six. That, I think, is a good, simple way to outline the book of Galatians. Three divisions, apostle of liberty, doctrine of liberty, life of liberty, with two chapters in each. We have an autobiographical section in which Paul talks about himself. We have then a doctrinal section, and finally a practical section, as Paul talks about how we live and how these truths relate to our lives. The Galatian letter is extremely interesting and really quite unusual. I want to mention just a few unusual characteristics before we begin to look at the content. And one of our main purposes will be for a few moments tonight, to try to get an overview of its content on the framework that we've already outlined, autobiographical, doctrinal, and practical, on those divisions, Apostle of Liberty, Doctrine of Liberty, Life of Liberty, we would like to hang the contents of the letter. But I would like before that to just mention some of the unusual characteristics. In Galatians, the tone is noticeably sharp, and there's no denying that. Paul becomes at times very, very pointed. If they're going to practice circumcision, I would that they would even go beyond circumcision. Paul says in what seems to be clearly a rather caustic statement, moved by a very vigorous 
denial of this era. There's a noticeably sharp tone that runs through Galatians because Paul is greatly concerned and immensely agitated that these his converts have so quickly defected from the faith. Another thing, Galatians is, with the possible exception of 2 Corinthians, the most autobiographical, the most personal, and the most emotional of Paul's letters. If there's any exception to that, it might be 2 Corinthians. In the first two chapters, Paul defends his apostleship. It's quite apparent that these false teachers know that Paul and his message must somehow be discounted if they're able to spread their error. And so they present Paul as a sort of second-rate apostle with a second-hand hand-me-down message. And Paul devotes about two chapters to defending himself, his apostleship, and his message. There's another rather striking thing in Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the thanksgiving part of the letter form is omitted entirely. There is no thanksgiving at all. There's a rather long and full prescript, verses 1 through 5, including the author, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. You have the recipients, the churches of Galatia, and you have the ordinary, ordinary greeting, grace and peace, from God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to rescue us, to deliver us, from this present evil age. You have a prescript, but in the letter form, after the prescript, after the salutation, there's always a thanksgiving. And Paul will usually say something, as he says in Philippians, I thank my God for you upon every remembrance of you, making mention of you in every prayer of mine, and that's totally and completely omitted in Galatians. The great apostle who almost without exception, will include that expression in every letter. It was a convention, a literary convention of the time, omitted the thanksgiving entirely. And right at the place that you would expect it, Paul said, I marvel that you're so soon removing from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Galatians chapter 1 at verse 6 and following. I've sometimes illustrated in classes like this, if you're rushing up to a friend, expecting a warm embrace or a warm handshake as you're greeted by a left jab followed by a right cross, you're shocked to say the least because you're not expecting that, not in that context. And right at the time when ordinarily Paul, following the letter form, would include the thanksgiving, he said, I'm amazed, I marvel at your rapid defection." that you're so soon removing from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. You have the noticeably sharp tone. You have uh, a, an intensely personal, emotional, and in places very autobiographical letter. And you have something that's striking and unusual in Paul. The total omission of a part of the usual first century letter form that Paul would almost always follow, the thanksgiving is left out completely. It should have started at 1 and 6, as our Bibles are now divided. And Paul says, I marvel you're so soon removing from him that called you into the grace of Christ and to another gospel. The end of Galatians is unusual. Paul used a scribe. 
Paul used a kind of secretary. The technical name is amanuensis. I was real glad when I learned about that because I had a hard time with a beginning typing course and I just barely got out of there with a withdrawal passing. And I was glad to learn that Paul used a scribe, but he did. But he takes the pen much earlier in Galatians than usual. And at 6.11, we hear him saying, You see how large letters I write with my own hand. And the rest of the letter to its close is written with his own hand. Certainly all of Paul's letters he wrote. In the very word chosen by Paul, actually more accurately, chosen by the Holy Spirit. But Paul did use a scribe, an amanuensis or secretary. But in this letter, there is a much longer handwritten close, beginning at chapter 6 and verse 11. The letter is unusual because of its versatility of presentation. You have arguments from experience. You have great use of Scripture, particularly Old Testament Scripture, as he shows that we're not under that system. As law, he appeals to the very Scripture of the Old Testament to sustain his point. There is the use of an allegory in chapter 4 involving uh, Sarah and uh, uh, her offspring uh, Isaac and involving Hagar and Ishmael. So you have the use of allegory. You have the use of argumentation and logic. You have appeal to experience. You have the use of Scripture. You have other kinds of appeal. Great versatility in presentation. It might be noted, too, the letter is somewhat unusual in that it's addressed to the churches of Galatia. And really, that's the only one of the acknowledged Pauline letters where something like that is clearly stated in the beginning of the letter. There's at least one other letter of Paul that may have been circulated through a particular geographic area, although it doesn't begin to the churches of this area. Whereas most of Paul's letters are to uh, uh, the church of God, which be at Corinth, or the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, or all the saints in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. This letter is to the churches of Galatia over a rather wide and significant geographic area. All right, let's look now at the content of the letter, chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle of Liberty. Paul tips his hand in the beginning of the letter, in the prescript of the letter. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The American Standard renders the prepositions there a little bit differently. Paul, an apostle, not from men, neither through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Immediately, you know, there has been an attack on apostleship. And Paul responds immediately by defending his apostleship. Not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. There are two threads in the beginning of the letter that extend all through the letter. The defense of apostleship, seen mainly in chapters 1 and 2, and the fact that the gospel is a kind of rescue, and that we're delivered not by the law and the keeping of Moses' law, but through Christ. Notice here, in the beginning of the letter, verse 4, "...who gave Himself for us, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might redeem us from this present evil world, this present evil age, according to the will of God the Father." The idea of the fact that Paul has received his apostleship from Christ, from God, from the Lord, and the fact that the gospel message is deliverance, 
deliverance by grace. Those two themes introduced early run through the entire letter. Verse 6 we've already noticed. I marvel, I'm amazed, that you're so soon removing, that you have so quickly removed from Him that called you into the grace of God unto a different gospel. Unto another gospel, the word there is hetero, unto a different gospel. Which is not another, but there will be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. What's the message of the Judaizers? It is a hetero or different gospel, troublesome and perverted. There is only one true gospel. And the idea of salvation by circumcision plus the cross, salvation by the law plus the gospel, is a hetero gospel. A different gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then Paul pronounces a curse. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach unto you any other gospel than that which we preached unto you, let him be anathema. That's really the Greek word. In the King James, let him be accursed under the curse of God. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach unto you any other gospel than that which you've received, let him be anathema. Am I now seeking to please men or God? If I were yet pleasing men, I would not be the servant of Christ. And that brings us down to verses 11 and 12, which may be, certainly we all love Galatians 2.20, and certainly it strikes at the central germinal truth of Christianity. But 11 and 12 may be a major proposition, certainly of chapter 1, maybe of chapters 1 and 2. The King James has it, I certify you, brethren that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what the false teachers were saying? Paul is a second-rate apostle. He is a pseudo or second-rate apostle. And he has a hand-me-down message that was simply given him by those who taught before him. And Paul denies that. I certify you, brethren, I make known unto you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation. The word for revelation is the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. You come to the 27th book in the New Testament, and it's called the Revelation, the Revelation of John. All right? The word apocalypsis means revelation, a disclosure to unveil, to make known, to make manifest. Sometimes the word refers to the second coming, but sometimes, as here, it refers to the revelation of the message. Paul, how did you get your message? Did you go through a long period of instruction in which maybe Ananias, or maybe later Peter, or maybe later James, the brother of the Lord, or maybe one of the apostles, or somebody went through this long period of instruction, and you showed up at their office every week, and uh, they got out the notepad and the, and the scrolls and the books, and you studied, and that's the way you learned, and that's the way you got the message. wasn't like that at all. wasn't like that at all. The gospel which was preached to me is not after man. I didn't receive it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation, apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. Paul is here affirming that the message came from our Lord. And in defense of that, he speaks of his relative independence of human teachers. Before he became a Christian, that was understandable, because he made havoc of the church of God, and he persecuted the church savagely. Let's just imagine, back in the first century, the visitation chairman is handing out the cards for everybody's visits. 
And here he gives one to a fellow, and it says, Saul of Tarsus, archbow of the faith, uh, persecuting Pharisee. Get over there and show him the Jewel Miller film strip. Hey, it wasn't like that. You know why? Well, nobody was going to see him. He wasn't on anybody's prospect list. He had uh, letters authorizing him to bring back people bound to Jerusalem who were of the faith. And so he talks about that early. And then he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. The first thing I didn't do was check with human teachers. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to those that were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and then came again unto Damascus. And then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. And there was a brief 15-day inconsequential visit with Cephas. Paul makes reference to that. About a two-week visit with Cephas. And then years later, Paul goes back up. And during this time, he's had an effective ministry in Syria and Cilicia and elsewhere. And he's unknown by face to the churches of Judea. Only they know that he who persecuted the faith now preaches the faith that he once persecuted. There are two incidents in chapter 2 that I want us to notice. Early part of chapter 2, Paul comes in company with Barnabas, and he goes up by revelation to Jerusalem. Some believe this is the famine visit of Acts chapter 11. Some believe this is the visit at the time of the discussion of the issue of circumcision in Acts 15. At any rate, Paul goes up there. And at this time, there are false brethren who would have compelled Titus to be circumcised. Titus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. And Paul will not allow that. And he tells us in Galatians 2, to whom we gave place by way of subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We couldn't allow that. That would be a way of saying that Gentiles cannot be saved unless they do all within their power to become Jews. And unless they come under Jewish law. And that's false. All of us, Jews and Gentiles, are saved by God's grace as expressed through the cross on the condition of our obedient faith. That's what saves a man. And that's the truth of the gospel. That every man, regardless of race or place or anything else, finds favor with God through God's grace upon the basis of his obedience to the gospel of Christ. And so Paul comes before the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. There's Cephas, there's James, there's John. And Paul said they extended to us, to Barnabas and myself, the right hand of fellowship. They saw the gospel of the uncircumcision had been committed to me. And when they saw the grace of God given me, they extended to me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas. Only they would, Galatians 2.10, only they would that we should remember the poor, which I had always been careful to do. I had been forward to do. There's another incident in chapter 2. Paul comes to Antioch. And Peter there had been eating with the Gentiles. The significance of the table fellowship is this. Paul's eating with the Gentiles, or Peter's rather, eating with the Gentiles, indicates that these Gentiles have favor with God. They've obeyed the gospel. They've been washed in the blood. They've been added to the body. They're a part of the body. They enjoy divine favor. And Peter's been eating with them. He's learned some important truths. He's preached to Cornelius. He's learned not to call any man common nor unclean. 
He knows the law has been taken out of the way. He knows the dietary regulations have been obliterated. And he knows that Gentiles and all men, regardless of race, find favor with God upon the conditions of the gospel. So he's enjoying table fellowship with these Gentiles. And then there are some Jews from James who come upon the scene here at Antioch in Syria. And Peter withdraws himself. He makes a kind of strategic retreat. Now, there's nothing wrong with his teaching or his conviction, but his conduct is not consistent with it. He knows better. The book calls this dissimulation. The book calls this hypocrisy. And Barnabas is drawn away by that hypocrisy. And Peter is withstood to the face by Paul. And Paul says, now, Peter, you being a Jew, live as do the Gentiles. How can you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And we who are Jews know that we have our salvation through faith in Christ. And it's in that context that Paul says, I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness has come by the law, then Christ died in vain. Let's see what's happened in the first two chapters. In 1, 11, and 12, Paul said, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. I've received this message from the Lord. I'm not a second-rate apostle. My apostleship is from the Lord, and my message is from the Lord. And much of my work was done for years independent of human teachers and independent from uh, consequential contact with the apostles. In addition to that, when I did by revelation come to Jerusalem, the pillars of the church, those who were reputed to be somewhat, gave to me the right hand of fellowship. And in addition to that, at Antioch I rebuked Peter to the face. And he had to admit that he was to be blamed. And so my message has been vindicated. And my apostleship has been vindicated. Go with me to chapter 3 as we continue to try to survey under the headings Apostle of Liberty, Doctrine of Liberty, and finally Life of Liberty. Chapter 3 begins with a series of questions. The Galatians have received the Holy Spirit, as all do when they obey the gospel. Did you receive that by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Miracles were worked in their midst. Did that come by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You have begun this in the Spirit, or are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? He asked a series of questions like that. Listen to Paul as his great heart agonizes over converts who are about to turn from the truth. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who did bewitch you? He literally is saying, who put the spell upon you? Who mesmerized you? Oh, foolish Galatians, who did bewitch you before whose eyes Jesus Christ is set forth Evidently crucified before you. Placarded, the Greek is saying. Placarded, evidently crucified before you. This only would I learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And it's by the latter, by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you're going to be perfected in the flesh? Hey, would you think of tying a little boy's kite on the front of a 747 to sort of increase its power. That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Well, are you going to tack on Judaic law, that old system, onto the gospel to kind of increase its power? That's ridiculous. 
You've begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected uh, in the flesh? Because really that's what you'll have if you go back to the law. All right, did you suffer so many things in vain? You've made an investment here, and you've suffered because of the message. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it be in vain? He that supplieth to you the Spirit, coming back to the Holy Spirit, living within the Christian, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? A kind of rhetorical questioning that goes on, and in every case it's the hearing of faith. It's the reception of the gospel that brings the great blessings, that brings the maturing in the Spirit. And it's by the hearing of faith that they have the Spirit. At verse 6, a great Old Testament passage is quoted. Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. We read elsewhere. He believed God and it was reckoned or counted unto him for righteousness. Now they that are of faith, the same are the sons of Abraham. Physical descent from Abraham is not the consequential thing. And you don't have to do all within your power to try to become a Jew. The matter that really is of, of consequence is that it's, you have his faith within your heart. He believed God, and that was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Now, let it be understood that the faith of Galatians and the faith of Romans and the faith of, New, of the New Testament is obedient faith. Take just a moment to look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. In Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth nor uncircumcision, but faith that worketh by love. It's an active faith. It's an obedient faith. But we're justified by faith. We're not justified by the works of Moses' law. Paul tells us why. Verse 10, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. The nature of the law was it took undeviating compliance to the law. It's evident that no flesh shall be justified by the law. Verse 11, For the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Remember that one. One great Old Testament text that anticipates a New Testament truth. The just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith. But they that do them shall live therein. Look down to verse 15. I speak after the manner of men, though it's but a man's covenant. Once it's confirmed, no one adds to it nor takes from it. Brother Hoover Mikado and I join into a covenant, an agreement. We get it ratified. We get it notarized. That thing now is valid. Now, Hoover doesn't add to it. Old Avon doesn't add to it. Nobody else is going to step in and add to it. That's the general rule. There may be exceptions, but that's the rule. Now, if that's true with a man's covenant, Paul uses the word diatheke, covenant. If that's true when two men enter into a covenant, how much more when God is one of the contracting parties? And God made a covenant with Abraham. A great promise that takes the form of a covenant. And he said, In thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now the covenant confirmed beforehand by God in Christ, the law which came 430 years after, cannot disannul the promise so as to make it of none effect. God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations. In thee and thy seed. The law comes at least four centuries and more later. And that's not going to disannul the promise. The promise still stands. And my salvation and yours, and the salvation of the Galatians, depended upon the working out of God's covenant made to Abraham. Moses' law wasn't given until centuries later. And it didn't at all disannul the promise. Paul tells us, unto Abraham were the promises spoken. Not unto seeds as of many, but unto seed as of one. Which seed is Christ? 
That Abrahamic promise finds its fulfillment through Christ. And now the covenant confirmed beforehand by God in Christ, the law coming 430 years later, cannot disannul so as to make the promise of none effect. Our inheritance is not of the law, but of the promise. In effect, he's saying that in 18. In 19, he anticipates an objection. Well, what then serves the law? If our salvation comes on the basis of the promise to Abraham, what's the point of the law anyway? The law was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. That's Christ.